Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Welcome to Magic Without Fears. Bob Freeman. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You are, uh, you're the occult detective online. Yeah. And in yeah, life. That, that, yes. I write, I write fiction, occult detective fiction, and I am something of a paranormal investigator. So yeah, I wear the occult detective badge proudly. So I love it. When, when did you first become the occult detective? Well, uh, yeah, that, that's interesting. So probably yeah. officially, uh, 1986. Uh, which is ironically enough when the current season of uh, Stranger Things is taking place. That, that was a big if year. You watch Stranger Things. I, I live in Indiana, right? So when I watch that show, I'm watching my childhood. Um, but in '86, uh, my friends and I used to hang out at this uh, shelter house at uh, the Mississippi State Forest. It's a very haunted, sacred Native American land. Um, and we're, we'd like to party out there, you know, and I will admit that substances were being consumed and, uh, a CO came up upon us and 
and he started asking us a lot of strange questions about the occult. And um, I thought, oh, okay, here we go, you know, satanic panic. Uh, but I started explaining my beliefs to him and, you know, pretty much won him over. And then he said, well, do you want to see something weird? Okay, you know. So me and my best friend, we followed him out through the woods along a trail. And in the middle of a clearing was a campfire. And near it was a pentagram, a cat crucified. Um, all this, all the typical self-styled Satanist trappings that you, know, you would expect to see from kids that listened to a lot of Ozzy Osbourne and were deciding they were going to worship the devil. Um, so I looked over the scene, explained to him what I thought was going on. And uh, so I guess in that instance, I was an occult detective called in by the authorities to investigate a crime scene. And uh, I used my expertise to help them figure it out. And then they started calling me and uh, I investigated a few other such uh, situations for them. And there I was after that, you know, that was kind of my thing, so. Wow. Wow, we're going back to '86, and Indiana, Indiana is where is is where Stranger Things is things is set. It is, yeah. Actually, they they released a book here recently, and they pinpointed exactly where Hawkins, Indiana, is. And oddly enough, it's about thirty minutes from where I'm at, sitting right now. So, uh, so yeah, it was like they they do a really good job on that show of capturing what life was like in this area in that time frame, uh, it was rough, it was, it was rough years. I, 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 I play Dungeons and Dragons. I have played Dungeons and Dragons since 1978. I'm still playing with the same guys I was playing with in 1978. That's amazing. That's yeah, amazing. So, um, yeah. So we were raked through the coals as you can well imagine in that time period. So, uh, but we came out on the other side of it. Okay. Um, I remember, well, okay, I'll tell you a quick little story. 1983, we're sitting in uh, the, the cafeteria of my local high school. I would have been, uh, in 83, I was a, a senior. Um, so we used to talk magic all the time. I mean, I, mean I, was, I, was, I was deep into it. You know, the other kids, not as much, but peripherally. You know, they read H.P. Lovecraft, Robert E. Howard, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I would bring books in and we would discuss different topics. Well, as a joke, one day we're like, we pulled out a hostess snack cake and I committed a ritual sacrifice of a ho-ho, you know, and everybody was laughing and it was real funny, you know, but so people started talking and so suddenly we became those people, you know. Um, well, we decided a friend of mine had bought a copy of the Simon Necronomicon, all right? In fact, that very copy is right behind me. Yeah, look at that, right on the shelf. This is the very book that he uh, had brought. And we decided we were going to perform a ritual from it. And we got 13 of our friends together and we went out to the Missinewa Reservoir to a place called Goose Creek. And 
All right, so it was a very cloudy night, night of a full moon. The person that was going to perform the ritual parked at the top. I took everybody else down this old derelict road. Um, the, I should explain the, the reservoir. There used to be an art commune down there called Somerset. Uh, now is underwater. Um, but when they let the water out in the fall, you know, you've got all the old roads and derelict buildings and stuff. It's really creepy. But so we go down this road and I'm setting up circles of protection to put the, the spectators within so they won't be harmed by anything that we do. Mm. Well, as, as we come down this road, the water's, you know, completely low. There's all these dead trees, you know, reaching up to the sky. You know, they look like accusing fingers pointing to the heavens and suddenly the clouds parted around the moon and it looked like an inverted pentagram framing it and one of the girls just freaks out and then somebody else said why are there dead fish everywhere you know and we and they were it was covering this road and that's because the water had lowered and the fish died mm -hmm. but there's and then somebody says oh wait isn't the fish the symbol of jesus oh my god what do we do we shouldn't be doing this and so they're freaking themselves out already well we perform the ritual it goes awry people are screaming people are running for their lives um it was all good fun right but then by the time we got to back to school the rumors around the high school was that we were sacrificing children worshiping the devil and so it got so bad that I got called into the principal's office on the day that I was supposed to be in, uh, admitted into the National Honor Society. And he explained to me that he was not going to allow me to be inducted because I was worshiping the devil. And uh, so I'm really upset, you know, and I go and I talk to one of my teachers. So a bunch of the teachers got together and they marched down there and they demanded that uh, I be allowed in because I was basically a good kid and you know you can't can't keep me out just because of some you know harmless pranks that, that kids were doing so so I was uh, yeah eventually I was allowed into the National Honor Society but but that was that's what the 80s were like in Indiana and in most places around the country i suppose so at that time period yeah wow um yes yeah. i know my, my... Hmm? yeah it's fun stuff yeah yeah 86 is when i graduated from my big wheel to a bicycle and yeah. uh and so so i have very good memories of that year and and life at that time and my parents had played dnd in the 70s but had to stop once i was born or my mom had to oh. Since I was born, she she thought she wouldn't have to, but she didn't realize right. how much work it would be. Um, right. Right. Especially like I was really sick because I was undiagnosed celiac, so I was like the doctors thought I was going to die the first few years. I was just screaming in pain my whole childhood, basically, until I got a little bit older. And, yeah. So now you're like a gluten free diet and all that. Yeah. Now? Yeah. 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 My son is as well, right? So he has. Uh, yeah. He has, it's uh, it's a challenge. It is like I have to be careful with even just basic grains like rice and, and stuff. Uh, so, you know, but uh, yeah. you feel so much better once you make the switch that it doesn't matter. You wouldn't consider going back to it. 
like it's it's you know right so just to to protect him we basically i i eat a gluten-free diet as well right but if i'm out somewhere and i just grab something i can feel it immediately yeah i can feel it affect me and i think wow you know that so they're really doing something wrong <laughs> to the grain right so yeah yeah grains become 200 percent more glutinous on average in the last 100 years 100 years ago celiacs died around the age of three to six right right yeah and then like in the 20s we lived to nine by the 50s we lived to usually our teenage years so my dad was diagnosed with sprue which is celiac disease in, in 1952 in 53 he was diagnosed uh one of the early cases um yeah, but he refused to believe that that his kids could have it, so he made sure doctors never found out that he had it when they were diagnosing me and my sister. So that was fucked up. Yeah, yeah that's all right. Funny. There's a reason that's we don't all talk anymore. Yeah, I'm sorry yeah, he, about that. He, he believed this is a spiritual. Let's take it back into this. This leads us right back into the occult. Actually, it's because they were part of the Maharishi thing. They were oh. training all of that. Yeah, right. So instantaneously, we're back to this. Well, it was a spiritual reason, actually. It was a spiritual reason for withholding medical information because the belief is if people didn't know, the kids didn't know what disease they had, they would transcend it through their meditating. And, you know, we were meditating at early ages at seven after, uh, you know, the full initiation and everything. And All right. I can tell you this, uh, the med uh, transcendentalizing pain can help you not suffer as much, but it certainly doesn't fix the problem. Right. You know, Um Anyway, didn't in our case. But enough of enough of the, that. Um, yeah, so 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 I didn't start playing D and D till eighty nine, and didn't really realize that 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 magic was a was a real thing until a couple of years later, and uh, that then it just went from there. Did did uh, what got you what got you first into like accepting the the reality of of magic and its sort of role in history, which has been so, so well hidden from us in, in, in plain view. Yeah. So it started for me when I was eight years old. Okay. And I, yeah. So when I was a kid, I used to spend the night with, at my grandparents' house quite a bit. And um, in the bedroom that I slept in was this old trunk and it housed my great grandmother's things. Uh, she was in a nursing home. And so I decided one night I'm just going to dig through this trunk. And it was full of astrological charts and uh, different like religious tracks. And I came across this book called Unseen Forces by Manly Palmer Hall. And it had, you know, just like a, a really vivid. Uh, illustration on it. it was, uh, the book was from like 1946, I think, this particular track. So I sat and read that and it was all about elementals, basically undines and salamanders and all this and the, uh, the dweller at the threshold. And I'm reading this and I'd always been interested in fantasy and I read comics and all this. But as I'm reading this, I realize that this person is explaining something that's real. And so I immediately believed it because I wanted it to be true, right? And so here's this book telling me that it is. And I'm a, I'm a little kid enough that I just, I buy it hook, line, and sinker. Um, so 
I immediately started trying to find other books. And so at the Converse Library, there was, they have a Carnegie Library there. This is a small town population of, at that time it was about a thousand people. It's a little less than that now. Um, but they had, you know, and again, this is the, you know, the, the early seventies, but they had a uh, Gerald Gardner. They had a, a bunch of Sybil Leake stuff. Uh, so there was plenty of things for me to read and learn. And so I started adapting witchcraft as I read from these books um, and kind of a, merge them with Norse mythology because I had read a book called The Children of Odin that I was really taken with and I realized that my ancestors would have worshipped those gods right we came from Scandinavia Scotland England Ireland uh, totally northern European and so so I just adapted whatever rituals I could find from witchcraft and replaced, you know, the Celtic gods that they generally dealt with or Greek gods and replaced them with the equivalent Norse deities and, and performed rituals and stuff like that. So that's kind of how I got my start. Yeah, that's cool. I, I also, my first love was, was the Futhark ruins that I would cast every night before I went to bed, I'd read them and make a note of my diary and that was how I sort of really got into something um there wasn't as many books though back then on the Norse stuff there was like a little Norse magic book there certainly wasn't the the publishing uh wave that you have now it seems like so I'm not oh. too familiar with the North stuff despite my early interest in it and now it seems like there's I see authors I think see books like the hanged god that must be Norse right. that's like yeah. I don't know I don't know the literature so I'm thinking you might be able to give me some view of what's going on with it now because it seems like there's a lot of state exciting stuff going on in norse magic and, and all that yeah i mean right so yeah like you said there was not much um and then like when when stuff first came out it was like dj conway right had yeah. a book on magic and you know and all that was was redressed wicca right yeah. so she did the same thing that i did in elementary school <laughs> you know and she's mass you know, mass marketing these this um and then uh, ed fitch had a book um where basically he did the the same thing he, the lesser ritual the the pentagram the banishing ritual right he just copied that and called it the hammer right and used hammer symbology and i'm like wait i've read enough golden dawn stuff i recognize what you're doing here and you know and he's calling it this ancient right you know brought down you know and and so all the early Norse stuff was just poppycock, you know, so uh, it was really hard to get through all that. So basically, and, and I'm not that impressed with most of the stuff that comes out now, to be honest. But if you're, if you're into the Norse thing, then, you know, just reading the Havamal and the, you know, the, the, uh, the Eddas, you know, that's, that's pretty much all you need to do. Everything you need is there. Read the old sagas. You're never going to recreate rituals as they were done then because there's no record of them. Yeah. So you just have to kind of the way I look at it is it's a modern age, create modern rituals, you know, it should be personal anyway. Um, yeah. I, I have a problem with, you know, doing magic by instruction manual, 
you know, so I mean, I, I did when I was young, but as I've gotten older, you know, and I'm, I'm getting near 60 now, and I had a lot of success. And I guess maybe it's because I did all that as a young man that I've gotten to the point now where I can, I can do magic by intuition rather than by, you know, something laid out for me by past masters. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And now a word from our sponsors. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. So are there, are, are there any of, of these fancy new Norse books coming out? Are there not any you recommend or think are really great that have stood out to you? I don't know. Maybe you haven't checked them no, out. No, see, because I get sent them a lot, right? So I do book reviews for Llewellyn and Wiser. And so anytime a, a, a Norse book comes through, they immediately all send it to me. Um, say, hey, review this. And so if you'll notice on my website, you know, occultdetective.com, you don't see a lot of reviews of the Norse books because I don't do negative reviews. So if you're not seeing me review those books, it's because I've read them and I don't, I don't want to encourage you to buy them. Right. So off the top of my head, I, I can't think of anything really um, that's come out recently. I know there's gotta be something, but it's just not coming to me right now. Uh, you know, the, the old, the, the Edward Thorson stuff, right? I would recommend any of that, but that's not really new. You know, it, it but they re-release that stuff all the time. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have his rune. Have he's his... a problematic individual, but, uh, but he knows what he's talking about and that's half the battle. So, yeah, I, I, uh, I know I saw once on his Wikipedia, it was listed. He had like, uh, connections to, I don't know if it was if it's mentioned KKK or some other white supremacy stuff, and I and I saw oh. he was on Facebook, and this was years ago. So I actually just asked him about it, which might have been a mistake. I was like, I read your Wikipedia, <laughs> you know. So and what did he say about that? His um, 
he was very he reacted as you'd expected very um you know cautious contained um my assumption obviously was that it was it was people messing with him because you know when i read it i remember thinking like, who, who would who would who would you know and uh in those years it was hard for me to imagine anyone wanting having anything to do with that kind of stuff of course it wasn't all the rage that it seems to be now now nah, i don't even well, know yeah, i don't even know, I know how to talk about was, it i know that he was in the levee's church of satan i know that he he was in the temple of set right so it, it always was weird to me how you marry those things together you know so but it's it was also you got to remember the time it was right so if you're coming if you're young and you're coming up and you're looking for groups to belong to you know and you're wanting to do group magic you know okay you take me for instance right i i live in you know the bible belt you know so finding a, a group of people to work with was nearly impossible so i ended up being in an alexandrian witchcraft coven for a brief time because that's the only people i could find so i i would venture to guess that the same thing was true of flowers right that he's looking for a group he finds you know satanists he he's with them then he he graduates over and he's looking for a group to belong to mm. and so i don't i don't know if you can hold that against him because like i said if if you know, we, we want to belong, right? We want, want we want like-minded people around us. And so if you're looking to perform magic in a, in a group, you, you do, you know, I'm not exactly, you know, a big fan of uh, Alex Sanders. Yeah. But that's what was afforded me, you know, at that time, you know, when, when I'd first gone to college, that, that was the group that was there. So. Yeah. Yeah. You got to sort of do what you can do. I remember our, our high school Wiccan coven, we eventually had to let this dude in who was calling himself a Satanist because there was just no one else. And my buddy was like, it's him or it's just us. I don't like. Yeah, right. All right, right. He wants to do ritual. As long as he's not trying to do Satanist stuff at our Wiccan midsummer rites. And he's like, no, no, man. He just wants to, you know, do magic. It's like, okay, we'll give it a try. You know, and, exactly. the, and the guy was fine. We became, we became friends, friends for decades. You know, he did sure all his spells were about sexual potency or love. It's like, but <laughs> right. you know, that's what you get from 14 year olds, right? 15 year olds. Um, mine was exactly. all, my spells were always for spiritual transformation, insight, wisdom and stuff, but they were always, yeah. You know, what, uh, what was interesting was the kind of results we were generating at our, uh, at our get togethers and rituals and stuff. That's what was crazy right. was how right. we, we, yeah, we were, and we, we got into serious testings of our, of ourselves. So you can still get a lot done, even if you're not necessarily working with people whose goals in life are, or souls are completely aligned with yours, I think. Right. I, I agree totally. And sometimes that, that's good for your spirituality, right? It, yeah. it, it tests. And, uh, and you never know. <laughs> that's one of the problems with like the the modern kind of, I, I hate to use the term cancel culture but you, you know what i mean the problem with that is you don't get the opportunity to change someone right to help them on the path right if yeah. you're there a good example for them sorry about that yeah no worries 
Yeah, pardon me. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was just saying that if you if you're canceling people and pushing them away and ostracizing them, then how are they ever going to become better if you're not there to help them become better? Um, now, obviously, there are some people that you know will, would cross a line where you're not going to allow them. But you know, I I think I think most people can be redeemed. And, and they never can be redeemed if you're putting them in a box. Yeah. And setting, throwing them away. Yeah. So, yeah. So I accept people as they are. I try to, you know, and until they, they, they cross a line and everybody's going to have a different line. But uh, yeah, I, the, the whole point is, is why we do this is to become better individuals and I think you become a better individual through becoming a better community, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it does. I, I agree. I agree, and that's one of the things like that I think we need to somehow try and do is is you know just is keep disagreeing with with each other without uh, trying to destroy each other. It's just it just doesn't work, uh, really, as far as I can tell. I mean, it just begets. <laughs> like I, I i had to go through like the golden dawn wars in the 90s in a really serious way um right and like it was not fun i mean i mostly i i i mostly i you know i wasn't really involved in it i was too young i was too young and too focused on the actual studies we were doing but they that stuff was going on you know um right. and uh it was just it was it was a nightmare it was really unpleasant and uh <sighs> I think I, I think a lot about how it might have been avoided, you know. Um, but it's really hard when you have a few people, just like a couple bad eggs, a couple of rotten apples, just trying to, you know. So many people come into the occult and see a chance to uh, to take advantage of others by claiming titles and knowledge and power, and then uh, lording it over other people, and they think that that's actually what it's about. I mean, you actually did an article recently on on a one such influencer that shocked a lot of people. I noticed a lot of the young occultists I've talked to, I did an interview with, of course, River the Nemeton. And a lot of people were surprised to see, I think, an adult comment on the situation. I think that's what caught people off guard about, you're, but you're the occult, the occult detective, posts, a, you know, what's going on with this wiser uh, GR dot darling thing. And, 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 and people, I saw, I saw the youngins sort of go, oh my God, this is actually like, something people are really aware of and i'm like yeah people are aware of this stuff because you think we're not watching what's what's going on when you you know if, if we see people crying on instagram because mobs of people have bullied them for reading uh evola or something right, right. Like, are they uh, yeah so she, you know th then we're gonna people notice that you think you think all of us don't notice that that's how you're using your influence to like bring people to tears and bully and threaten them yeah and you're going to hear from us eventually when when the shit hits the fan and the shit definitely hit the fan, eh? It, it really did. It was, uh, I, w I was very thankful um, that I was able to get wiser to actually comment on it. Um, and I thought they had a very reasoned response um, because, I mean, that, that could have gotten really ugly for them as well, you know? And I... <sighs> 
when they were attacking the publisher, you know, when it evolved into that, it's like, you people don't understand how publishing works. Uh, of course, you know, they offered Georgina a, a deal because she had influence, right? She had a following. Publishers are in the business of selling books. And I guarantee you, her book would have sold. Yeah. Right? It would yeah. have sold well. And, and publishers need money, especially now. You know, it's a... Uh, so, you know, so for, for every, uh, you know, for every uh, Jason Miller book, you've got to have, you know, something a little more pop oriented, uh, something, you know, for the masses. And th that's how those publishers stay alive. Um, so, but, and people forget just how young these kids are. My goodness. When I was, I would hate, I'm, I'm so thankful there wasn't the internet when I was, you know, 20 years old. I'm sure I said a lot of stupid, I, I guarantee you I said a lot of stupid stuff and I probably believed a lot of stupid things. Uh, we evolve, you know, and, and uh, now they're just on display and they make mistakes and, you know, they're young enough, they're, they, they can still be helped. But, you know, you, you look and see what happened to her. And, you know, there's a part of me that, you know, that thinks, you know, somebody should be reaching out and helping her. Uh, but instead, she's, doubled, she's doubling down because she's being attacked. And so by her doubling down, you know, there's, you know, it's going to be hard for her to come back with any real redemption. Um, and, and I just, you know, I prefer a redemption arc. I always do. I always want people to yeah. be better. Yeah. Sometimes it takes years, though, I guess, especially when people are at the stage where they haven't yet learned that glorious adult lesson in life where all you have to do is be like, whoa, I'm really sorry I was wrong. Yes, yes. Mm. Apologizing is adult superpower, right? It works. Yeah. It's really powerful. Yeah. My life changed yeah. when I learned it. Yeah, I, I'm really sorry. Yeah, you know, it's just yeah, that's uh, a hell, a heartfelt apology is maybe the strongest magic of all. All right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, the whole thing was a bloody mess, and you know, there are certain people that just stir that up and they enjoy they enjoy the drama of it, and I'm I'm sure you see that and know people. You know, and that's what the internet breeds and that's what social media breeds. And that's too bad because social media is brilliant and, and, and wonderful. Without it, we wouldn't be connecting, right? Yeah, so, yeah. No, mostly I focus know? on that aspect of social media. Like I have amazing conversations with people all the time that I've never met. It's all through these things. And uh, that's what I focus on. Like, you know, I was on the way to just D&D &D last night. One guy from Instagram, you know, calls me as I'm getting off the bus. I'm like, you know, because I'm pretty open. I'm available. Right. He calls, you know, we've never met. And we just start, we chatted as I went into the place and had a great little chat. It's just, it's wonderful. I like that aspect of it. The, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the fighting and, and, and in the, the, the nasty side of it is, something that appeals to a different type of person than us 
Um, and the question I think maybe is sometimes how can we be maybe give those people a sense that there's another way, you know, you we, it would be nice to be able to it would be nice to be able to help people prevent these things or avoid these pitfalls. Right. I've tried. Yeah, that's what we're here for. I mean, that that's why we're here is to is to help people, um, you know, and, and through helping others, you help yourself. And uh, I don't know, I guess, you know, maybe again, it's because I got more gray than dark these days. And so I've just seen it, you know. Yeah. And we're not in, we're not in junior high school anymore. You know, come on, people. Yeah, well, I think that was the real mistake was uh, thinking that the uh, high school politics you can get away with on Twitter would play a, play in the real world. But unfortunately, the real world is a much different place than Twitter. Um, right. And the thing is, is it's not isolated to any one group. Right. As you, you play Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> as I do, you see the same thing there uh i i enjoy comics you see the same thing there right you, comics gate and and uh, the osr versus you know it just it's it's in every every little niche i'm involved in there are those you know culture wars you know and it's uh it's very depressing you know it's like you know i, I i'm typically a very upbeat and positive guy and it's just like uh, i've got to mute you people for a while you know so it's rough yeah yeah how much do you think um of the problem is this um this thing that's arisen is this idea of being an uh, uh like i don't know if it comes along with the power of the influencer and having such large followings through these platforms like tiktok that, that generate these you know mini cults of of sort of of uh you know hero worshiping of the person which is what i see happening how much of that is due to like um, a conflation of the influencer status with what's supposed to be the knowledge level of the person, you know, like I have all this influence there. Sure. I sh should know all this stuff, but I'm too young to know all this stuff. So I have to, well, I guess I have to fake it to keep to be an influencer, but it, that doesn't actually work because then you, when you fake it, you cut out all the people that you actually need to learn from because yes. they don't want to have anything to do with people who are faking it. All right. Right. Yeah. That, so what do you you're, do? You're nailing it right on the head. I, I wish <clears throat> that those those people would ad, admit that they're 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 learning, right? And they would be more forthcoming in that. And and you know, if you say, hey, join me on my journey as I learn about this. We'll learn about it together. That's how you do it, right? But yeah, it's just, it's ego. It's all ego. And it's hard to escape that. I mean, you see it in, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name names, but you, you see all these little factions. And, um, and I think a lot of the fighting occurs because, you know, some certain people get upset that this other group, well, this other guy has, has more followers than me. You know, why? I, I know more than this guy. And so his ego is bruised. So he starts attacking that person. Right. And that gets a back and forth of the war. And that's how the war start. And it's generally from a place of insecurity. You know, the, the desperate need to call somebody out when they're wrong. 
and the fact that those people aren't honest yeah it just it's a it's a breeding ground it's a swamp you know it's just it, it is and uh i try to find it i try to find a path through it you know? yeah do, do you do you feel it the way i feel it this that that you want to you know try and and at least leave you know the the people the people coming after us in as good shape as possible so that it doesn't devolve into some strange occult future of i don't know so many bad things can happen with the uh, ideologues and occultism as we've seen from the 20th century um you worry well, about the future or yeah. think about how you can better influence it right yeah so yeah i, I agree with you totally because um, you're a dad right you, you just had a kid graduate like this is something right. you probably you know more about this kind of thinking and and relation yeah. to the world than i, I do having no kids <clears throat> I was lucky, you know, my son's 18, he'll be 19 in October, and he's a brilliant kid. I mean, just smart, um, well-rounded, um, but he was, he was insulated um, from the, the, those kind of high school politics, like that we discussed earlier, right? So he, he never, he never had to experience that, which is good. Um, so as a, as a parent, that was, that was, that was a blessing to me. Um, so most of his friends are older, um, you know, like my age, you know, or, or slightly younger, you know, guys in their forties mm. and, uh, he's a writer also, my son. Uh, cool. and that's, as he graduated, you know, it's like, where are you going to go to college? And that is, I want to be a writer and that's what he's doing. Um, and he's 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 talented so you you learn to, to kind of nurture and foster that that spark of creative creativity in him it, it, you know in somebody like that you know the same thing with you know any extended people that you're connected to you know by by lifting people up the you know you, you lift yourself up and you lift the, everyone around you so um that's that's like the best lesson i learned you know just you know po positive reinforcement works uh negative reinforcement almost never does so yeah yeah Maybe. i grew up you know my i grew up in a house yeah you know, I, I love my i love my father to death but you know he was he was very old school, you know, he was quick to a belt, you know, and, you know, and that's, he, he taught you from, you know, with a fist, you know, so, and I definitely did not want to raise my son that way. And so, but that's the same kind of thing you see, you know, on the internet, you know, and is that people are, are quick with the fist, you know, they're quick with that negative reinforcement and that you just don't get anywhere like that. Um, yeah kind of depends the, on the platform you're on i think i'm sorry what was yeah, that it, it sort of depends on the platform I, I i checked out i you know i jumped a little bit back on on uh on twitter uh 
recently and and yeah that's that's a very negative platform but you know like the the people i talk to through like youtube or instagram it's usually almost entirely positive um which is yeah. you know like 90 it's 90 percent positive and then you know and and the block button works well the delete button works well so you know that's as far as i right. need to get into cancel culture it's like you're canceled i squish you yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah right i don't i don't need the negativity you know it's yeah. like i'm always life is extremely short you know you know i'm, I'm on the back end of it <laughs> you know and you just you know and and i just it, it flew by so fast <laughs> you know it's like you know i i'm burying friends you know like you know they're you know and i'm like tell me that i mean i'm, I'm not that old I'm, i still feel young i still feel like the same you know 12 year old kid you know who first rolled a d20 i feel like you know I still feel that Even feel that that spark. That's so, a secret, yeah. Um, but you know, at the same time, you know, yeah, I'm late fifties, so yeah, the, there's there's more road behind me than ahead of me, and if I can impress anything upon these young people that on the internet that are you know engaged in these you know idiosyncrasies. Um, it's that this is going to, it's going to be gone before you know it, you know, and, and then you're, you're going to be that 40, 50 year old that's, you know, looking back and going, why, why did I waste so much time on all that negativity? And, you know, so luckily that's a lesson I learned pretty early, so, eh, but that's, Maybe the kids aren't doing as much hallucinogens as I did when I was young. So, you think that's Certainly. it? I do think so, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel that you know, hallucinogens are the great teacher, you know. So, yeah, I got some golden teachers right over there. I bought them at the corner store, which is now how apparently <laughs> we get mushrooms in Vancouver at the corner are store. Are you kidding me? No. Wow. Yeah. They had like well, a whole display case and they have like infused mushroom teas and sodas and cans and everything just at, at one of the busiest intersections in Vancouver. They had another one right next door to me right here with like black and white tiled floor and a big Wonderland thing of like from Alice in Wonderland on the screen printed on top. And but they didn't tell the owner that that's what they were going to be doing in the shop. So the owner was able to terminate the lease and get rid of them when the government pressured them. But you want to actually you got to find a landlord that knows sort of what you're going to be up to or mm -hmm. or that you're paying so much rent to that they don't care. Right. Um, because it's they're decriminalized. And in British Columbia, I don't know if you know, it's just announced they're decriminalizing everything. Um, on my next birthday, next January 31st, heroin, meth, crack, MDMA, everything is getting decriminalized. Um, and it, uh, and uh, and yes, as a, as of re, as of the other day, um, they've you can't get a gun anymore. I actually even tried because um, some people were saying you still have time, and I called up, and they're like, no, we won't we won't let you let you go through the course that would let you qualify. So they're they're legalizing drugs, basically, and. Uh, and taking away uh, guns from non-criminals, so it's going to be an interesting wow. future. Um, I, I'm very it's curious how that plays out. Yes. Yeah, it's an that's, experiment. That's, that's definitely an experiment, isn't it? It sure yeah. is. Like as long as you, um, well, they're only decriminalizing personal amounts, by the way, just to be specific. So it's like right, five right. grams of heroin, I guess, whatever that is, 
um, or, you know. So my next birthday yeah. party, we can all do meth. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's the right path. But I, I, know, I right? be criminalizing it, you know, because I don't, I don't think you treat drug addiction with jail, right? No, so yeah. uh, and the stats out of but, Portugal are very enticing. Where, where I live, um, I, would, I would do serious jail time if I just had a, a joint. So uh, crazy. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's so weird how different. Now, if I went into Illinois or Michigan, well, there it's legal, you know. So those are the border states to me. Uh, so yeah, it's odd, yeah. And, but yeah, so but I am a I'm a proponent of you know, well, marijuana, you know, psilocybin, uh, LSD, you know, MDMA, all the all the fun fun things. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot of good things um but my town where i live in like i said less than a thousand people i live just on the outskirts of it in a little wooded area but uh, a week doesn't go by that there's not somebody overdosing on fentanyl in this little town right we just had a murder a couple of months ago um three guys murdered a guy in the street over a drug deal and i'm like this is you know wait a second you know, this is not the way it's supposed to go down. But uh, so would legalizing drugs or decriminalizing them r- remove that? Well, I mean, if 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 that guy was able to go into a store and purchase the drugs he needed, then he wouldn't be dealing with a criminal element and getting shot over owing them money. Yeah. And you and you don't have the, the you know, people can safer with like the the dirty drugs kills a lot of people so like exactly well that's that's the deal with fentanyl right so they're they're buying heroin and they're getting fentanyl instead right so yeah and that's why being um, apparently like here in vancouver apparently a lot of people the people want the fentanyl like they'll only buy their meth or their heroin if it also has fentanyl and they if it doesn't consider that shitty which i was shocked to hear yeah. Well, I guess that that's what uh, Michael Jackson died from fentanyl overdose. So, um, I, yeah. yeah, it's not that's not my cup of tea. You know, that's yeah. I'm know, glad it's getting decriminalized so that you know it's going to be easier to treat people and help people. I think. Um, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so growing up, right? So, like, I was always um, I, I enjoyed heroic doses of hallucinogens. And, uh, you know, like I was always surrounded by people that were wanting to party, you know, and you know, go out and have a good time. And, but I was always using drugs as a, a part of my spiritual, uh, progress. Uh, it was I always made it a part of my ritual. Interesting. Uh, wow. So I, I tried to, I tried to avoid the, the social aspects of drugs. I mean, other than, you know, like marijuana and, you know, that was different, but hallucinogens, I always treated in a, a very sacred way, you know, because I recognized from the very first time I did it, that this, this, this is a teacher, you know, I was, I was able to go inside myself and I was able to peel myself like an onion and see who I really was. And that was, that was important to me when I was young and 
and like I said, it was, I considered it a great teacher. Of course, <laughs> um, the first time I did acid, it was uh, something I had always wanted to do, right? So um, I was working in a lumber yard and this, you know, and I was talking to one of my coworkers and he says, well, I can get you some. I said, well, great, great. You know, so I bought 10 hits off of him, you know, blotter. And so on my lunch break, I used to go to this graveyard and eat my lunch. So I go there and I've got the 10 hits and I tear one off and I put it on my tongue and I'm sitting there. Nothing's happening. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe it's low dose. I'll take another one. So I put a second one in. <laughs> sitting there. Nothing. It's like that guy ripped me off. So oh, I no. eat the other end. Right. Ooh. So I'm okay. 10, right. And I'm sitting there. I finish my lunch, pack all my stuff up. I get in my car, I'm driving back to work, and I'm mad. I'm, I'm going to give this guy, you know, a piece of my mind. And then about halfway back to the <laughs> yard, the road starts snaking, right? And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm feeling weird. I pull in, I park, I'm walking up there, and everything's different. You know, I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, what did I do? <laughs> and uh, so as I'm walking up there, my boss leans out, out the window, and he says, Freeman! you know, get around back. You got to load, you know, 300 tuba fours on this truck. Okay. So how am I going to do this? All right. I walk back. How you doing? And I start pulling the lumber out, put it on the truck and it's wiggling like snakes. These, you know, eight foot long tuba fours. Oh boy. So I got the truck loaded, went in, told the boss that I was sick. He let me leave. I went out to the reservoir set for the next 10 hours give or take, staring out across the lake and watching the world unfold before me. So I was hooked, you know, yeah. I was like, oh, this is all right. So, uh, yeah, so that was, that was my first experience. So I'm glad you had a, a beautiful I went experience. Deep, I went into the deep end <laughs> first time. Yeah, you did. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a three, three's can, three towels would be a deep, a deep journey um yeah so it's interesting to think that uh that i mean i know a lot of kids are more risk averse uh the younger generation are much more or not is risk averse the wrong way of saying it? they're less into taking risks yeah they're more risk averse um yes yeah which is an interesting thing to see uh it makes sense it's just generational that happens right um responses to the previous generation and all that but i i wonder i wonder if uh if uh if that is good if that would be helpful for them to uh maybe just take a few more chances in the uh in the psychedelic department or something like that it's hard to say it's always hard to say because everyone's so different and everyone responds differently and if you don't have the right people introducing you to things with set and setting and stuff like that it can get really ugly um yeah it's it's obviously it's not a it's not a blanket cure right so there are some people that should never take hallucinogens right and you know the personality types you know the the, the people that you just know that okay this the, these this person is not going to react well to this no. and that comes from right be from somebody with experience that recognizes that and spends some time i mean i remember uh, i was in the desert southwest i was uh, living kind of moving from reservation to reservation 
And uh, when I was staying with the Navajo, um, I got to take part in a peyote ceremony. Cool. And uh, before they ever let me take part in that ceremony, I sat for hours uh, with the shaman just talking, you know, and just, you know, basically shooting the shit. And uh, so I said, oh, yeah, great talk. And he said, well, I had to make sure that you were ready. Like, oh, okay. You know, well, that was good talk, you know. <laughs> so, uh, and then, like, you know, an hour later, I was puking my guts up <laughs> and uh, having an amazing experience doing so. But, um, yeah, so. Now, how did you find peyote? What was that like? How did you find it compared to LSD and other things? Totally different, right? So if you were to ask me my preference, you know, I, I prefer psilocybin. Yeah, me too. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it's very warm, but it's also very, it's very rough on your, on your stomach. Like, like I said, I, 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 I threw up, right? Not long after drinking it, it tastes very foul. Um, and there's just no way. And I wasn't the only one, you know, throwing up. The people that were very seasoned in it, you know, would, would throw up as well. And I guess that's just part of the process. So that part is very fun, but the the hallucinations were much more vivid. Like I I so I'm in the I'm in like a little sweat lodge, right? And so when I when I go to vomit, I I, I leave the, the lodge step outside and I'm, I'm, I'm throwing up and my eyes are closed and you know I, I just feel myself expanding and then when I opened my eyes I was like in a I was like in the backwoods of Indiana in the winter and it was cold you know and I'm in like you know calf deep snow and I'm seeing animals you know running you know out in the in the little field and I'm surrounded by you know trees you know, ash trees and, and there's some pine. Uh, there's a lake nearby, and I, I pretty much knew the spot. It was a little different, but you know, it was it was very similar to a, a spot, you know, near my home. And then, you know, you know, you kind of blink, and then you're you're back in the desert, and you know, and, and it's cold there too because it's nighttime, but. Uh, yeah, it was it was very transformative. I mean, I, I was in another place, uh, you know, almost like I, I had teleported, you know, to that location in another time and then snapped back. And it probably it probably lasted. You know, that part of it probably was 10 minutes, maybe. But then after that, you know, you're just kind of it was, it was similar to a psilocybin buzz after that. Right. So, you know, you're just, everything's so crisp. And my favorite thing to do, you know, on psilocybin is to stare at a tree. My absolute favorite thing. Sit out there, just stare at a tree and see every distinct leaf, perfect, crisp. And I can see each one individually and I can see the subtle movements. And if I look at a cloud, I can see that cloud tumbling, you know, and all the energy in it. And you could just, I just love that connection. Yeah. You get that, that same energy and it's coursing through you. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful experience. I wish more people had the opportunity and it's hard around here. And 
I quit. I, I stopped doing drugs of any kind when my son was born because of where I live. Yeah. I, look, I don't want to get arrested and go to jail and be, be separated from my kid. So uh, now he's 18. So I'm starting to think, you know, <laughs> okay. we, you know, you're there at his graduation, all beaming. He's like, you proud of me, dad. You're like, and happy for me. It happened for me. I, but but now I'm off with you, son. I would vacation in Michigan. You know, it's like, all right, I'm gonna I'm going for a weekend in Michigan where it's legal, you know. And uh yeah, so yeah, but parents, it, it was it's been a long 18 years. So <laughs> yeah, my parents were very, very anti-drug, uh, unfortunately, because it led me to mistreat others uh who were who who used like in high school, like I would you know, I would, wasn't kind to them because I mm -hmm. thought what they were doing was evil because that's what I was told every day of my life growing up. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like, thought I, your parents would have been different based on their... Transcendental religion. meditators, Maharishi, man. They're, 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 and they were, you know, almost pretty much mandatory vegetarianism, veganism, almost. Um, they're anti-gay, um, which is which a lot of people don't realize or Maharishi was he's considered it unnatural um they uh a lot of things like very culty behavior that you see going on there and uh yeah like you know my whole life growing up my every time my dad saw someone smoking which was often in the 80s um like you know they're yeah. in all our restaurants like we well I'd go to family events and there'd be my uncle's blowing smoke in my face you know and we'd be like coughing and choking and no one cared um, but when, when I, when my dad would always take me aside and say, you know, the, the, the best thing we could do for smokers to put a bullet in each of their heads. And I would be like six, seven, eight years old when he'd be saying this over and over and over and over again. So it definitely influenced my younger life. I didn't even try weed till I was 24, you know, try to see when I was 18, but that was about it. Didn't drink. Um, yeah. So they didn't drink, didn't do anything, all of that stuff. Um, yeah. So that was too bad because it took me a while to like realize that I had been, you know, misled. Um, and worst of all had been taught that it was right to abuse people who, you know, enjoyed those things, which is crazy those, to me. Yeah, breaking that type of indoctrination is hard too. Yeah. I'm sure that, the, you know, is a real soul searching experience for you. I mean, and all kids go through that, you know, you're, in, you're indoctrinated by your parents in various ways, you know, but that's, that's extreme on your part. Yeah. Right. So yeah. um, I, I did, I didn't start, let's see, I didn't drink anything at all until I was uh, 18. That's when I started smoking. I didn't do drugs until the summer after I graduated high school. And then I didn't do acid until I was 19. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, I was kind of a, like, but most of my friends had been smoking and drinking since junior high. And, but I always thought it was, you know, body is a temple. I shouldn't do that stuff. And yeah, you know, I, I think, I think I, it was, then I was a musician. Right. And so like, I wanted to look like Jimmy Page. So smoking a Marlboro cigarette and letting it hang, you know, while you're like, while, while you're playing, well, it just seemed natural. That so, takes yeah. a little practice. Oh. What's that? I, I, it takes a little practice. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. 
you know? I remember and, the first band rehearsal where I was able to keep uh, smoking while playing. And, and afterwards I was like, do I really want to start doing this? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Look, nothing looks cooler than when like you take your cigarette, you know, and you put it, you know, you know, in, in the guitar, you know, in between the strings and, yeah, yeah, I did that, and then I almost burned the, you know, burned the Gibson Les Paul Silverburst, and was like, oh, that's not smart. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So, when when did you start playing guitar? Uh oh, uh, I didn't start playing guitar till what 2013, 2014. Mm. It was one of the yeah, it was a later stringed instrument. So I was already like playing professionally on you know eight string bazooki citerns and uh you know practicing renaissance round back lutes and then uh, i decided to get some guitar skills up as well so you know when i first started playing guitar as a full-time musician so i was i started putting in like five six hours a day and you know picked up pretty quickly and uh, you know especially once i understood started realizing how it worked like guitar is essentially an open tuned instrument basically everything it's sort of an e instrument just like dad gad or bazooki or d instruments or cfad if you're playing greek style right. And once you understand that and you know, understand how the movements work, where are the, all the chords are up and down the neck, then it's like, it was like, you know, it was easier to wrap my head around than I actually thought. Um, right. It just takes right. time. It's just blood, sweat, yeah. tears. Yeah. Muscle memory and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I started playing. Guitar, let's see. You I play got, guitar? Yeah. 17, I guess. Cool. Uh, I got a Tysco Del Rey electric uh that was uh had been in a guy's closet since 1964 um he bought it because he was a beatles fan and then never learned how to play it so it sat there in his closet and he oh, sold wow. it 60 bucks so uh and i just got it back right my first guitar and i just got it back a buddy of mine i had sold it to a buddy of mine in the oh mid to late 80s and he just married a woman from ireland and so he's he was moving to ireland and he stopped by the house and said hey would you like to have this back and i was oh, are you kidding me yeah so i was uh, i was over the moon so it was it's it's it was fun to play it again because you know, that's what i learned on so it was great yeah cool very cool uh, so yeah i was in bands and stuff when i was younger and you know, I played a lot of classic rock, that kind of stuff. So. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually, after this interview, I'm actually uh, meeting up with my friends and we're going to see uh, Jack White tonight at the Coliseum. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. They got, they Great. got seats on sale for like 25 bucks in the bleachers. And last night I uh, just bit the bullet and got a, got a floor seat. So I go right up to the stage and that should be fun. I'm excited. It'd be a fun night. So what the ticket there run you? hundred. Like Bucks. 100 okay. 150 160 um yeah yeah because we were just looking at uh uh tickets to go see stevie nicks of all people right but we were like oh yeah well okay. you know i had seen her a few times back in the 80s i was like oh yeah that might be kind of neat to go go see her and the lawn seats were 150 dollars, and if you wanted to close you know close to the stage you were getting up into the two thousand dollar range yeah i'm like really who's who's who who is going to pay that you know it's like uh, you know i get i you know i don't i don't want to be that you know the old guys like, whoa back in my day but you know i can remember going to see you know you know jimmy page for i think and i was amazed it was like 1850 
for you know really good seats or yeah. or I, I oh concrete blonde and I was I could reach out and touch John Napolitano's leg and I paid like you know 20 bucks you know for you know that's it's like yeah it's, it's really hard for me to think in terms of triple digits on ticket prices so but I mean yeah. they gotta make I, I get that but well sort of I mean I, it's a little messed up these days live nations charging like crazy fees like 30 40 50 dollars service charge fees a chunk of which goes to the saudi royal family who owns part of it so it's like what are we doing what are we doing like what happened yeah. to, this is not good for the bands at all um, it's not good for live music at all yeah I, I got tickets to the tea party just uh for august their show in august and it's just a thousand person venue a small venue the ticket was still over a hundred dollars wow yeah yeah and all the tickets are the same right so it's like yeah things have changed man but hey at least you know what so what's exciting is all these artists are coming through town now that the restrictions are changing and stuff so i'm definitely right. gonna well, miss out on my chance to see live music now after what just happened with covid i'm gonna be like okay i'm gonna see these people because i might never get to see them again right you, who knows when the next thing does, comes along and they lock things down again right yeah and i feel bad for musicians right because there are no album sales anymore right you know that's, oh, yeah the only way for them to make money is on the road. And that's, you know, you're a professional musician, you know, that's, that's hard. That's a hard life, you know, so. Oh, yeah, well, I, you know, yeah, post COVID being a professional musicians, uh, not so easy anymore. That's not, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I, I can't even focus on it. Right. But that's, uh, Oh, God, what do I, what do you do? What do you say? I don't know. It's, 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 me I, I don't know what to say about the fact that like the, the, these companies like Spotify and iTunes can just not pay us anymore. Um, it's, it's really crazy. They, they kept so much of our royalties that it's like, it's, you know, the number's really high and there's nothing we can do. And you can just remove your music and, or, or yeah, you're, right, yeah. yeah, you're, yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky. So I wonder if YouTube would be a better venue or something like that for music, you know, because then you get more of a, a live experience, you know, where you're performing for a camera. And then, if, you know, if you have enough followers and you, you make income from that. Well, like I yeah. use the intro to my podcast is, a, is, the, is the melodic uh, bridge breakdown of one of my songs. It's a, yeah. you know, so it's very, it's got some uh, chanting and Nokian thought invocation in the background. And, uh, you know, it's a beautiful little breakdown of instruments and, uh, and effects from the, uh, from the uh, master track, you know, uh, you know, we use, sam use samples from the actual tracks um, yeah. instead of artificial samples. Um, and uh, because of that, uh, YouTube permanently has all my videos demonetized and will never monetize them because as far, as far as they're concerned, I don't own my own music anymore. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I've hey. been through the ropes with them and there's just nothing to be done about it. Um, so yeah, so the money, all the money that would, would have gone to me goes to the distributor and the distributors just don't pay us anymore because they don't have to actually, they just charge us like, yeah, like a, instead of a royalty check, which we used to get, we just get every year, we get a $1.50 charge from them. Wow. I know. Oh. Wow. Yeah. And I've talked to industry people and they're like, 
yeah, we can get your music off there. It's like, I don't want my music off there. I want, I want to put it back on there and get paid for it. They're like, oh, well, yeah, yeah no. Oh, we can't do that. <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah, that, I mean, that's bad as uh, one, one of my best friends, his dad, who's now passed, sadly, but he, had, he was a songwriter in the 60s, and he wrote some stuff recorded by, like, uh, George Jones, Conway Twitty, you know, country artists like that and uh so the royalty checks still come in you know and it's like it'll be like 14 cents you know 36 cents it's just like the the check you know, the, the actual physical check probably costs more than the royalty you're, that you're sending but yeah. you know stuff adds up i mean he, he used to make obviously a lot more money the closer to when the song actually came out you know, that kind of stuff's not really as popular as it once was but uh, but still, it's it's just kind of you know somebody's making money. You know, it's just it's not the artist. <laughs> so yeah, it'll be it'll be actually very very interesting to sort of see how the music world changes over the remainder of our lives and where it ends up. You know, fortunately, people will keep playing music because the live the live shows coming back. That's a good thing. I mean, that as, assuming our world lets that happen, but. You know, when music became, when the live performances became important again, all of a sudden, all of these star, rock stars and musicians who were uh, mainly recording artists but sucked on stage got, got knocked out of the, uh, you know, the culture of it. And that, to me, that was a really good thing because, you know, there's nothing more depressing than uh, enjoying someone's album than going to see them live and be like, oh, they suck. Yeah, right. Total oh, shit. they were. They were using, you know, um, session musicians. Yeah. You know, and, and that kind of stuff. Well, uh, I can't remember now. Somebody, somebody was talking about how uh, they were watching. They were they were watching a band live, and they were watching the lead guitar player, and they were seeing him play. And he's sort of playing the solo. And he said, "That's when I realized, oh, they had somebody else play that, yeah. and he learned it as close as he could, <laughs> right?" Yeah. They, they had some session guy that ripped off this great solo that you hear on the record, and this guy's kind of limping through it, you know. So, oh, okay, all right, yeah. Yeah, that's always a fun trick. I mean, that that that. I mean, that's a that's an old problem. The Beatles had that problem too, right? Like, uh, what's the song? While my guitar gently weeps. They, right. They, none of them could play uh, an even remotely decent guitar solo for that song. None of them could at all. So they had to bring in Eric Clapton. Right. You know. It's yeah, a, I don't. I, there's nothing wrong with using the session players, but like the live show should can still be good, even if you can't play like fucking Eric Clapton and the Beatles right. proved that, right? So they still played that song beautifully live, even when they didn't have Eric Clapton. Right. Yeah. So, so what you do in a situation like that is you bring the session players along, right? If you can't afford it, yeah. Right. Um. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, Fleetwood Mac, right? Which I, I which I loved growing up. Uh, and then they had that whole drama thing where they kicked Lindsey Buckingham out of the band, right? And so anytime yeah. they kick Buckingham out of the band, they always got to replace him with two or three other people because, you know, he's an amazing guitar player, right? And so, you know, and when they, when they toured here recently, if you, if you watch and look in the background, in the shadows, there's another drummer, there's another keyboard player, there's a couple of guitar players, a bass player. They got a whole band behind them 
that are playing along with them. And I'm like, that's really odd, right? Yeah. How, how many bands do that? Well, you know, a lot of people don't even realize, like, when they see, like, the, uh, the, the big amps stacked on each other behind the guitarist, and they see, you know, the, the wall of amps or the, even just four or five big amps or whatever, the Marshall stacks and stuff, most of the time, that's actually not what's producing the guitar sound. Often, usually, the guitarist actually is also running into a very small, not necessarily shitty, but a small amp behind, and that's what's mic'd. Because that will produce way better sound, especially in a big place like that, than a, a wall of mics would actually create just mud. Of, of, oh, right, yes, uh, right. If you had like yeah. 20 amps, all marshals all pushing out sound, that would be like that would that would be a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you want a you want a good clean sound, good clean signal, and then you boost it through the main. <laughs> so but but it looks cool. That's why they do it. It, it looks cool. Often it, those amps yeah. are actually just not there's nothing inside them, they're just external, right. they're just the boxes. Yeah. Yeah amazing so yeah the the it's yeah, i'm glad we got to talk about music i had no idea about your musical side so it's really fun to 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 get into oh, yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah, that, well, that was my my ambition at one time was to be like you know singer songwriter kind of thing and uh you know so but and that i consider that all a integral part of my magic also so you know it's they're all it's all interlinked so. yeah well the great thing about music is it, you don't have to be doing it professionally for to do the same thing for you <laughs> like, right, exactly. yeah. i've had so many friends that quit gigging because they wanted to focus on their music right. you know and they're like right. no idea how many new songs i've written and recorded demos for this year yeah, <laughs> and right. it's like good good yeah right. and that's it you know when you're when you're performing uh you know anywhere from two to six nights a week like you don't have much time to develop in certain areas you do develop in the performance area for sure but you know right. you might not be composing any new masterpieces unless they just get inspired like that which is also fun yeah um, well i guess that's the good thing about like a band that's uh improvisational right so you, you take like like you know, led zeppelin for instance you know where they would sit there and improvise and then they would write songs on the stage you know, uh, and then the, okay, we'll remember that bit, and then oh, we'll put it on an album. You know, later, and you know, rip off the lyrics from some unknown blues singer, and you know, yeah, we got a hit. So, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> to to quote Ian Anderson, if you took his lyrics and Page's and Zeppelin's music, they'd have quite a good little rock and roll band. Yeah, you know, that's one of my favorite quotes ever, and you know, that's, it's a, uh, it's a great way to get kicked off opening for led zeppelin yeah it sure is yeah <laughs> though that would have could you imagine if be seeing like going to a show and the opener is jethro tall and then zeppelin that would have been uh, fucking insane, insane. yeah i'm just i'm not quite old enough to have right i just missed being of the that age you know so like as i'm growing up it was kiss and cheap trick and those bands, right? So that's, uh, yeah, I just missed it, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. Been I, something I, else. I always tell my mom, she she was actually born at the perfect time in all of human history to be alive. And she's like, always gives me this look like, how dare you, what, what? It's like, <laughs> you know, cause you know, for her, it was the fifties. I'm like, but you were 20 in 1968. Like, right, right. For someone who likes music, that just is like, it's like the it's the it's the grail. You were you you are the grail. Your life's yeah. the grail. You're 20 and 68. 
you literally had you not been busy uh, meditating <laughs> and you know with Maharishi, you literally could have seen everyone and heard yeah. everything. And when I think of having that opportunity, like, oh my God, oh my God. Like, I'm glad that I got to have the 90s because we we had some good musical stuff happen in the 90s. Sure. So then every five years, there's maybe one new band I fall in love with or one new artist I fall in love with, but it's not like it was in the 90s. It was like one thing after the next, like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, just just the, the list just it didn't stop. Jeff Buckley, like it was, it was amazing. Yeah, one of the most amazing shows I ever saw was uh, Alice in Chains was the opening act. It was, let's see, Alice in Chains, Anthrax, Slayer, Megadeth, Testament, I think. You know, it's just like a little, but but I was there for Alice in Chains. That's the, that's the only reason I was there. They were the, the opening act, you know, that's uh, right when Facelift came out. So, yeah, 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 90s were a good scene. Yeah, so. Yeah, and I I had just gone back to college then, right? So after like I'd done like three years working in a factory, and then took a buyout and went back to went back to college, and you know bought a Let's Paul and <laughs> right, and so nice, yeah. It was that was that was a good decade. So sweet. Yeah. How? What? When did you get into publishing and, and writing? Uh, seriously. Oh yeah. So that was okay. Yeah, that's an interesting story. So I'd always, I was always a storyteller, right? So, but I'd never really written a novel or anything. I, you know, written here. I was a dungeon master, right, since 1978. So storytelling came easy. But so I got married in 2000. And the week of my wedding, I lost my job. So, so I started my new marriage, you know, looking for work. And I wasn't having a lot of luck at first. So my wife, in her infinite wisdom, said, well, you know, you're always talking about writing. Why don't you write a novel while you have this time? So that's how it happened. She would leave for work. And I would sit down and I would write while she was gone. And then when she got home from work, she would read what I wrote. So that meant I had to produce every night. You know, I had to produce something that she could read so that she knew that I wasn't just laying around, you know, smoking dope and playing video games, right? So I had, I had to sit there at the typewriter and make something happen. So, and that was a really a real bonding experience for us, you know, as newlyweds. Um, so I finished that first novel. And shortly after that, it was kind of optioned for a film. Um, I'd met a guy online who worked for Dimension Studios. So they took it into development for like two years. They had me rewrite it a few times. This was a, it was like a horror novel sort of uh vampires werewolves that kind of stuff right so dimension at the time had made like uh what um oh i can't even think of the movie underworld yeah so yeah. that was right that was successful so they were like oh, okay we got another vampire werewolf book yeah we can turn that into a film so then they came out with a movie called cursed and it bombed big time and so then they came to me and said hey look we're 
we're going to go a different direction. And so they gave me the book back. It had never been pu published. So then I started shopping, shopping it to uh, publishers, got it published. I wrote a couple of sequels to it. They did pretty well. And uh, yeah, so it, it just kind of all came from me, you know, losing my job and my wife and, you know, kind of prodding me to actually do it. Sounds like you uh, did not fuck up when it came to uh, your choice in partners. No, I did not. Yeah. No. So we, we met at a, uh, we both worked at Walden Books. Uh, God rest its soul. I loved that bookstore chain. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, we, we met there in 98, kind of fell in love pretty quick and uh, got married in 2000. So yeah, it was a, yeah, she's been wonderful. And she, she gave me the best gift I ever got which was you know, my son. So yeah, spectacular. I'm really lucky. Yeah. It's awesome. And uh, how many books have you written and how many have you published? And oh, let's see. How many more are you going to write and publish? Yep. So I, I've published oh, six or eight, you know, and I've been in a lot of anthologies, that kind of thing. So I, I kind of want to write a, a, a couple of summation books, you know, just to tie up uh, the different series I have. Uh, it's a pretty intricate world um, that I created. And I'd like to kind of wrap that up for the people that have been reading it all these years, and give them a nice bit of closure, and then just focus on writing short stories, you know, here on out, you know, that writing, publishing is so different now, you know, and it's, I, what I'm, what I'm feeling like I want to do is, is to write nonfiction, you know, I'd like to write about ghost hunting, about you know, that whole paranormal field, you know, right. and I've written, I've written four magazines and stuff before articles and stuff, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm, my head's at now is that I kind of, you know, want to focus more on, uh, you know, my, my life experiences and, you know, maybe share the knowledge that I've gained in all these years. So, uh, and, you know, maybe learn some new things along the way. So. Do you, do you find uh, there's much exciting, exciting stuff going on in ghost hunting these days? Well, okay. <clears throat> the problem with the paranormal field is uh, television, <laughs> as you can imagine. So, you know, there's just a, a plethora of, of paranormal entertainment that, that kind of, kind of alters the way people look at things. And yeah. <sighs> I've got a lot of friends that are involved in these productions, you know, and, and they're, they're, you know, and they're, they're quality investigators, you know, but the shows themselves, you know, they, they've got to make money, you know, and it's, and I think a lot of the equipment looks good on TV, but I don't think it really works in practically. So you've got that problem. So you've got all these new people that are investigating and they're using all the toys they're spending all the big money on on that stuff and i think it's harmful overall to uh investigations and I, i'm the kind of person who i don't think you're ever going to satisfactorily prove anything to anyone so i don't even try right so that's i don't i don't go out and experience the paranormal and investigate locations 
to prove to somebody else that, hey, here's this thing that happens. I'm there using it in, in much the same way I, 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 I approach magical practice. I am there to converse with unseen intelligences and I try to create a dialogue and I try to learn from whatever entities are in these locations and have an honest conversation with them. Now that's very difficult, right? Because we're, we're in separate dimensions. Um, but that's, that's the way I view it. So <clears throat> if you don't believe that ghosts exist, me showing you a video of a full-bodied apparition that steps through a doorway into a hallway, you're not going to believe that that's what it is, right? Nothing I, you know, I mean, that's as good evidence as you're ever going to get. Um, if you play EVP for people, you know, that you pick up in these locations and, and they're not going to hear it. They'll refuse to believe it. They think you're faking it or whatever. So I, I quit trying to prove this stuff to people a long time ago. And I just treat it, like I said, like it's a, like it's a, it's a ritual. And I go in and I try to make contact and try to find out what's going on. Sometimes, you know, most times you're dealing with just residual energies. <clears throat> but every once in a while, you get to, to meet that intelligent figure um, and you can, you know, relate. And then sometimes you come across negative things too. Um, and there's, you know, as, as you are more than aware as a person who, who deals in the, in the magic realm, there's a myriad amount of, of uh, different entities out there that you can come into contact with. So uh, that's always exciting. You know, I, it's certainly a thrill. So, you know, um, I, I just talked to, to Daniel Rekshan, who, who did this book, of course, which is sort of his uh, kind of scriptures channeled work. And it's all Enochian magic. This is all the Aethers and working through all the ethers yep. and channeling them and to talk to extraterrestrials and, and, and uh, extra dimensional beings and all that stuff. Very cool. Obviously that was a lot of fun and, and he's just 12, nine hours down the road. So maybe there'll be some uh, events in the future that we can right, right. like, that would be cool. Right. Um, I'm all for that. I'm here for that. But uh, another one that I've just been uh, enjoying, I, I haven't actually been able to stop reading it since I picked it up is, um, is uh, Jenny Tyson using a spirit box to talk to Edward Kelly and John D um, oh, with the really? help with using Nokia magic and the help of her husband, who uh, one or two people has heard of uh, Mr. Donald Tyson. Right. What? So this is Jenny yeah. Tyson using a spirit. Uh, that's what you call a spirit box. The, the scans, the radio stations fast. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Sure. Um, and when I got to that part, I was like, Oh, that's what you're doing here. I'm like, okay. Um, I was actually was like, I'm really glad I'm talking to Bob Freeman coming up because, um, or sorry, sorry, not Bob Freeman, Bob iPhone. Um, <laughs> um, because I've, I've got questions or more, maybe I don't actually know what questions I should be asking, actually. Right. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. But maybe you might have some ideas there for me as I work through this sort of uh, really interesting book, because. You know, I, I, it's the first time actually I've heard of someone using, just like Rection is the first time I've heard of someone seriously using Enochian magic to talk to aliens and engage dream work and that right. Sort of stuff, right? Because it's not, he's not just about, he's not about the aliens in the sky so much as also the internal states and realms and extra, you know, all of it. 
And she's then on this other sort of angle, which is very different. It's very sort of exciting for me, especially as I'm focused on de-purism these days, which is right, really right. very, it is what it is, folks. Um, but you know, you sort of have to after 20 years of Golden Dawn style and Okin, you have to switch it up a bit. Um, well, you know, it makes me think of, uh, are, you, are you familiar with uh, John Tenney? John Kenny? Tenney. No. T-E-N-N-E-Y. He, he's, uh, let's see, he had, a, he had a show called Ghost Stalkers, right? So, but anyway, he's, he's more of like a, well, he's, he's a jack-of-all-trades investigator, right? UFOs, Bigfoot, aliens, the whole, the whole smorgasbord. But so a few years back, he had said, why don't people use Ouija boards to talk to aliens, right? And when he said that, it clicked, you know, it's like, why wouldn't you? And that's exactly what this woman's doing with this, this ghost box, right? And that's what the, you know, the other guy's doing, you know, using Nokian magic to converse with other intelligences. That's exactly the kind of thinking outside the box that the esoteric and paranormal field needs, you know, because you've got all these tools, let's figure out a new way to use them and and make these connections so yeah that's brilliant yeah I, I i need to find that book you know um yeah i mean obviously it's on amazon but uh, i'm very impressed with uh, uh you know jenny tyson you know i don't agree with every every view donald tyson has on enoki magic for example like they they don't right. think that you should ever use it for anything mundane or to to, to gain things but like that doesn't make, you know, to say that that goes against the inherent purpose of Enochian magic, which is a claim that's made, um, to me, is too much um, out of step with the grimoire tradition to be taken very seriously, because the grimoire tradition has, is, is, is packed with using the planetary intelligences, angels, and spirits to, to affect things and change in our daily lives like that is right that it, to say that that's not what that tradition of magical history is about you just can't it's just not true and so the idea that d would have been compiling a entire planetary heptarchial grimoire system of magic with these enochian beings that affect change through these planetary rays or currents it it's it's it doesn't it doesn't hold up Right. right. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it doesn't make sense. It would, it would be such a break from tradition, almost like he was creating something entirely new, which the Enochian system isn't entirely new. It's, it's, no. it's, a, it's a new thing, but it's a rendition of from within the tradition, from within the history right. of magic, which is not something that every new practitioner makes up a new version of as we go. No, they don't. No. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I went through that whole, that whole period. Right. So uh, I read all of the Tyson stuff. Yeah. You know, and, and I've learned a lot from it, you know, like, but like you said, you know, that I had problems with things, you know, but uh, yeah, but, but you run into that with anybody, you know, that has, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you've, you've read your way through Crowley and, Regardy and Mathers and everybody else under the sun, and you always find things that you disagree with, and that's the beauty of it. You know, that's uh, 
and sometimes they were purposefully deceptive. It always annoyed me, you know, wait, why, why are you hiding this? You know, that's, uh, you changed this, you know, this is wrong. You did that on purpose to figure, you know, <clears throat> just, you know, but neither here nor there. It's. <clears throat> so what do you think about the use of, 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 of paranormal psych, uh, parapsychological techniques with the, with the scrying and, and evocation? Do you think that that, should add how, and how does how does that affect our the net the importance of skepticism um and testing information you know what i'm getting at like yeah so i i think ghost boxes are funny things i will just we'll just, let's, let's focus on that for a second if you think about what it is <laughs> it's just a broken radio that's cycling through radio stations slowly at times and you get that choppy right and your brain starts putting things together and making you know recognizing i've had a real love-hate relationship with them i'm not sure you know it's it's one of those instruments that i'm not completely sold on but i have seen results come from them yeah. um, using it in a ritualistic sense makes sense to me because if nothing else you're tapping into your subconscious um i know have you are you familiar with the estes method and so these guys <clears throat> basically used a ghost box when they were investigating the Stanley Hotel. But what they did different was, is they put headphones on. So one person is listening to the ghost box and he's got a blindfold or a hood over his head. So he cannot see anybody else in the room. He can't hear anything other than the ghost box. <coughs> the people outside start asking him questions. And he is just repeating whatever he hears over the ghost box. Yeah. That ends up, that works, right? I think the ghost box on, his, on its own is a little more iffy. But using that technique, boy, you get a lot out of that. I mean, you really do. You know, because when you start seeing the questions be answered in that way you realize that there is something else involved in the situation now whether that is an actual outside intelligence or it's that that collective unconscious that that, that is kind of creating a narrative uh either way it doesn't matter right it's it's still magic and it's it's it still works it's still educational uh, it's sort of like what crowley said about you know, it doesn't matter if it's real or not, you know, because the effect's the same, right? So, um, but I would recommend to you, if you have access to a ghost box in that way, to try that method, you know. I saw it used in Hellier for the first time. Um, if you, yes, exactly. Yep, that's, uh, yeah, they, they used it to good effect in that. And 
I, I really enjoyed Hellier. At uh, it, it was weird. It came at me. Well, for one thing, it was kind of the pandemic, right? So it came at just the right time, kind of a perfect time when I needed to see it. And it reminded me so much of me and my friends in like the late 80s, early 90s, when we used to explore around here, because, you know, they were looking for goblins in Kentucky near a town called Somerset, right? So I grew up here near a town called Somerset, where we had this area called Hobbitland. Because they called it Hobbitland because the Native Americans there used to converse with these little people, right? And so the hippies around here called them hobbits. But what they were is this impish goblin-like race that lived here near a town called Somerset. So I'm watching Hellier and I'm like, God, this is my, this is me in my 20s us you know out exploring the caves and stuff or in this area and it's just like it was a weird synchronicity um so yeah i, I love i love tellier it was so well put together you know great filmmaking um had a great narrative structure to it and uh, and they were good investigators right it was, it was nuts you know right so but uh it was great I, I'm assuming you you enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I watched the first season. Um, I think I saw all of it. It's long, right? Like well, the first season was like really short, like okay. four or five episodes, and then I season probably, uh, eight was traditional, like maybe ten or thirteen episodes, okay. something like that. I'm pretty sure I've watched it for like around eight nine hours, so it's, I've seen a lot of it, but not every. Yeah, yeah, you probably saw most of it. Yeah. yeah. So. I keep thinking that maybe I should send them because they have the cursed traveling objects thing. Oh, yeah. I keep thinking yeah. I should send them my cursed object right here. But every time yeah. I unwrap it, I pull it out like something bad happens. So maybe oh. just best. Did you just pull it out just now? But I didn't unwrap it. Oh, you didn't unwrap it. Okay, good. Yeah, okay. It's, from, it's from the set of The Exorcist. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting, yeah. So yeah. I saw The Exorcist. Yeah, it looks scary as eight, fuck, too. It's terrifying. I was eight years old. I'll show you after. I watched The Exorcist in a drive-in at the at eight years old. The, you know, when it came out, it freaked me out. And that's when I started, you know. <laughs> at eight years old? Oh, shit. Yeah. So, so I saw The Exorcist yeah. that summer. And this is and back in the I day. That book on magic. And that's also when I started... Yeah, so I, I didn't tell this story. I'll, I'll tell this really quick. So I grew up on a horse farm um, out in the country, right? It was my grandparents. They had like uh, 60-some acres. And my my mom and dad and me and my little brother, we lived in a trailer in the, in the corner of it in a copse of ash trees, right? So <clears throat> my mother, she had issues. So they bought a second trailer and me and my little brother lived in that second trailer and you know mom would come over and look after us and such but but we had our own trailer so i had a door that went to the outside <clears throat> so age of eight i every night leaving that trailer and we had a, a graveyard about a quarter of a mile from our house 
So I'd walk up that country road and I would climb up in the old oak tree there and wait for ghosts, um, which that's when I first I saw my first apparition. But that, that little graveyard was, was fantastic, right? So it had all these urban legends associated with it. So back then it had a fence that surrounded it with a big wide gate. And if a woman would walk up there and open the gate and go in, she passed with no problem. But a man, when he opened the gate, the gate would swing back and hit them, knock them down or whatever, right? So it would attack them. Uh, so young kids went out there all the time. And this, it's a tiny little cemetery, you know, a couple hundred people buried in it is all. Um, so yeah, so all that stuff was happening at the same time. You know, me finding the magic book, me being sneaking out and, and, and looking for ghosts in that graveyard and, you know, uh, you know, and the exorcist taught me a lot about, you know, the, the occult, you know, is a, lit a, lit a fire under me, you know, and you got to remember all at that time, it's like when Kolchak, the night stalker came out and the Norlis tapes and all these great kind of occult detective like, uh, fictions, you know, in, in, in cinema. So everything kind of coalesced into this, you know, and Amityville horror wasn't too long after that. You were kind of doomed, you know, we're watching Leonard Nimoy on In Search Of on Saturdays, you know, and watching the Warrens, you know, out, you know, exercising demons or uh, Hans Holzer chasing ghosts, Sybil Lee casting spells. And it was a good time to be alive. Wow. I, it's interesting to me. I've never, I mean, I, yeah, I've never heard about that time from that perspective. That's, I didn't know that. Yeah. We were inundated with the occult in the seventies. That's when all the UFO stuff was going on, all the Bigfoot sightings and stuff, all that stuff was happening in that early part of the seventies. My parents were, were born in Arkansas and right. And so they were raised in the area of like, uh, you know, Boggy Creek you know, where they had the, like the swamp monster down there, right? That was sort of like a Bigfoot creature. And they had all these, all these weird urban legends from Arkansas that they brought up here. And so I was raised on those weird ghost stories, you know, from the Ozarks. And then, you know, being here, we, you know, this, this area is nothing but, you know, Indian land, obviously Indiana, right? There were tribes everywhere here. But so they, the the local Indians that still lived around here, like Chief Godfrey, he would come, you know, and he would tell you stories about, you know, witches and how they had a witch war. And if you go out to the Indian cemetery, everybody died the same time, right? All these did it. And he said, well, yeah, it's because there was a witch war then and we were casting curses at each other because half the tribe wanted to become white and the other half didn't. The ones that wanted to become white won, right? So that that entire tribe, the Mississippi or the uh, yeah the uh, Miami Indians, they traded their tribal identity in exchange for U.S. citizenship, and they turned over all the land in exchange for them being, you know, U.S. citizens. So now they're trying they're fighting trying to get their tribal rights back. But yeah, so they don't really exist. There's a corporation called Miami Indians, Whoa. right? But that so that yeah, so it, it, but so they had this big war, 
you know, where like, and he was explaining, yeah, we were casting spells and people were dropping like flies, dying. You know, it's like, you know, and if you're a little kid listening to this, you go, yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's amazing. You know, so it's, this is a great place to live, you know, um, especially at that time, seventies. Yeah, it's, it's. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I always heard that the 70s were very occult, but it's hard to get a picture of exactly how much so. I mean, you see all the books, especially the massive amount of paperbacks they were putting out in those times, um, that, like of books that are now very hard to find, right? We're very, right. Right. doing mass market paperbacks of Regardi and, and uh, R.G. Torrens and, and a lot of these other ones. So, yeah, I guess the thing with the piece we often forget is the culture that went along with it is how into it actually people were um right yeah yeah and it was it was an extension of that you know the hippie idealism of the 60s and how it kind of took a dark turn in the 70s right because you know all the drugs they were doing in the 60s and everything was peace and love man suddenly in the 70s they're all addicted right they got serious alcohol problems uh, and all that hippy dippy magic love stuff that they were doing then well, you, then you got the Charlie Manson stuff. Yeah. Led into the 70s where it's all a little darker and that's where you get the exorcist yeah. omen and, and all that stuff. So, But the occult was just inundated in culture. You know, it was everywhere you looked. You know, so... And, and as a kid growing up, I mean, that's why I was saying here in Converse, this tiny little Bible Belt town, we had a terrific occult library. You know, in our... In our you know, you go in there and it was all there, you know, it's a, it was amazing. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, yeah. Different era, different era entirely. I mean, even, even, even your president was felt comfortable saying that psych, that the successes were achieved through psychics, you know, with that one significant, the president was asked, how do you find this person? We used our psychic and everyone laughs. It's like, he's like, what? That's funny. <laughs> right. You know, you don't, well, I mean, it's too bad we don't can't get that level of honesty from uh, presidents these days. Um, it would be great if they would just be like, "Yeah, we used our alien spaceships." <laughs> right? Yeah, Ron, Ronald Reagan consulted astrologers all through his his presidency. Right? Ronald freaking Reagan. <laughs> He's using astrologers to make decisions. Yeah, you know, that's that's something else. You know, not to mention the fact that it's Republicans. Doing it's also. It. I mean, but these Reagan especially is is ironic because it, the reports are pretty pretty convincing that their parties like there was trays of drugs going around that anyone could use, and these were the just say no people, right, Nancy? Oh, yeah, so they were complete hypocrites, and you know, good Christians consulting astrologers, <laughs> magicians, and psychics, and you know, this was the MK Ultra height, wasn't it? Yeah. And yep. The beginning of Mockingbird and all that. Yeah. Yep. Things all that are yeah. things that are now only, we're only seeing the fruits of those labors now. Exactly. All the, all the LSD indoctrination centers they had that were revealed in that book Chaos, which is really yep. crazy. And it's uh, it's amazing how we see those projects like actually their their end games starting to play out in our lives today. Do you um oh what was that? I was gonna ask um do you do you see much how would you compare the uh, I guess the the popular rise of occultism in the 70s with the sort of revolution happening today because today to call it popular might even be an understatement 
or it will be soon, perhaps, depending on how things go. Yeah, right. Well, you, you look at like uh, Michael Hughes, what he was doing with the, you know, uh, the cursing Trump and, and all that stuff that, that kind of rose up. Yeah, the, the anti, yeah, that, that whole kind of <clears throat> politicizing of, of occultism that's occurred. And I, I guess it's always been that way to a degree, but it seems much more, uh, much more ingrained now than it was. So uh, it's, it's interesting, right? So I try to keep my politics out of my magic personally, but it, it certainly is an effective tool. It's a, it's a way of, of bringing like my, is it really that much different than like what uh, Dion Fortune wrote about, you know, when uh, World War II, you know, when they raised a cone of power to protect England from the Germans, right? Which seemed to be very effective, you know, it seemed to work. Uh, if you read uh, uh, any of her stuff on that stuff, right? you know, like uh, Gareth Knight and, and all that, you know, they really go into detail. So I guess magicians have always come together to combat political evil, right? So I suppose it's an extension of that. Hmm. Um, but it certainly seems more strange now um, because people are so divided and you're getting that same kind of war yeah, yeah. Um, Thelemites tend to be a little more conservative. You know, I, I know you had James Wasserman, you know, who was uh, definitely, you know, a, a, a conservative magician. Um, and, you know, and how that comes into con conflict with, you know, the more left leaning. Uh, wicca and such right so it's just it's odd and it's, it's it's hard to take that kind of middle path through it all which is what i've always tried to do i tried to you know be a, a person with an olive branch you know but uh, it certainly works i mean if things are not going your way then mag magic certainly is a tool to try to change that course try to influence the culture and uh Yes, but yeah. it's, it's not seventies. Yeah. So. No. Do you think? Do you think it's more popular today than it was in the seventies? Uh, magic. Yeah. Oh, far more. Yeah, there's okay. a lot more, a lot far more practitioners now than there ever was before. Yeah, it's uh, it's got to be the most in in all of human history. I I, I would suspect, <laughs> unless you know, unless uh, we find out some stuff about Atlantis or Babylonia. <laughs> But right, yeah. even then, yeah, they would yeah. feel it was oh, it was still a rich person's game to a large extent. You, you had to sort of be able to read or write and afford parchment to, at least to get in the game. Right, right. But, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know. I suppose there would have been a time. I guess I was trying to think of more pagan times. But even then, people would take part in ritual. But there was really usually only a couple of people that were, you know, actually magicians and they were just using the energy of of everybody else but now you know you, you know it's 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 everywhere right now granted you know if you break it down into individual sects um 
like the, you're not going to find very many, you know, uh, people involved in like Norse paganism, you know, or those, those numbers alone are, they're, they're pretty small, right? Yeah. You know, a few thousand people globally. Um, but I would guess, you know, tens of thousand, you know, people involved in witchcraft and, and, and several thousand people involved in, you know, ceremonial magic, and you start gathering all those people under one umbrella. Yeah, you're, it's a sizable chunk of the population. Um, it's, and, and it's weird because of, of, of just how many people have like tethers and like, I'm noticing now, like a lot of paranormal groups, whereas it used to be, they were typically Christian, right? Now they tend to be uh, some form of pagan i mean almost you know I, I would say probably 60 40 now which was very different you know 25 30 years ago interesting yeah so yeah and that and that's just that's the way the culture is is, is kind of evolving right they're turning away from the kind of traditional faith and people are are exploring you know um paganism in, in bold new ways which is it, it's it's fascinating and thrilling but what worries me is how kind of faddish it kind of is for some you know that's you know it's kind of hip to be oh yeah you know it's, it's hip to well i'm a witch you know and they, like they they say that but are they really are they or are they cosplaying as a witch online yeah like what what are they really what are they doing at home are they actually it, this is something uh sean of of uh, lux files and i talk about a lot is that how many of them are actually doing magic right are they you know they might read the books and they might pretend to be magicians but how many of them are actually doing magic because yeah they, there's a that's a big that's a big big difference I was worried about that until I, I until I was at PantheaCon in 2020 before COVID, and uh, then I, I complained to a few of the people there to get their opinions on it. And and this one woman as heard overheard me talking. She just turned around as we were walking toward the elevator. She's like, she's like, it's absolutely great because it pays for all of this. And I was like, <laughs> sold. Okay. Right. Yeah. I'm going to drop this concern from my brain. I didn't need it anyway. And I think your answer is perfect. Yeah. Cause you know, right. it was, uh, crazy for me to see so many thousands of people all in one place. And I thought I'd be lecturing in a small room. It was a huge hall packed with people. I was like, Oh, this is cool. Right. Yeah. Let's uh, do this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is just, it's the same way in the paranormal field. Right. So you'll, you'll go, you'll go to a convention, you know, and, it's like I can remember doing this a few years back, and it was like a couple of dozen people, and now oh, there's a couple thousand people here now. You know, it's like oh, it's a it's a it's certainly changed. You know, now and the conventions keep getting bigger and bigger, and you see that in the paranormal field, the the uh, esoteric field. Although I just saw that uh, down in southern Indiana, they have a big Thelema event right every year, and. Uh, they had to cancel uh, this year, which was I was not expecting because it had been uh, all through COVID. Obviously, they weren't allowed to to hold their festival, and uh, so I was kind of looking forward to, and I was planning on attending this year just to see what it was all about. 
that's the what you do right post COVID. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, but they had to cancel it at the last minute. So uh, for some kind of like health violations or something. Oh, I, I think I know. So my friend Ray, who is a you know, witch high priestess of a coven, she was on the podcast. She she was telling me the other day that this event it might be the same one. So I think she's sort of in your part of the states. Uh, got canceled. And I was like, really, after COVID, why they cancel? And apparently during that period, the the showers weren't upgraded to meet health inspection standards. And so that event got canceled. That's the same one? Yeah, that's the same, same one. one. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's just like maybe two hours south of where I live is where they hold that. So, and I've never gone. I've always thought about it. And I thought, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe post COVID, maybe this will be the time that I do go. And yeah, and then, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I look forward to going to events like that again. I uh, I tried to try to get a book flight just to visit my friends in Austin uh, last month, but they still won't let us leave. So unfortunately, you know, it makes sense that events uh, might. I thought it was because of the travel bans that things were getting canceled, but yeah, you know, we're not quite out of the woods, and hopefully, we will get out of the woods. But yeah, it's very cool that 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 there's such big events in the states. I I really wasn't aware of that. Um, until i was there at them and i was like damn this is a yeah, good thing because you know i really like the research and stuff and that like people are able to put out all these interesting books and manuscripts now because of the larger sized audience and because there are people who are completely comfortable and get a lot out of just being an aesthetic witch or wizard and and nothing wrong with that um and there's people that just love the high-end books and buy all the, all the 500 600 000 books that come out from these boutique publishers and they just are absolutely in love with those books and i'm like that's nothing wrong with that you know that's a great thing you know right exactly if if you can get you know 10 20 percent of those people that actually stick with it and grow in it that's a success right you know so and there's nothing at all wrong with the outliers, you know, it's, it's not, it's not hurting anything. Right. If they want to, if they want to, if they like the, the witch aesthetic, more power to them. I like it too. The more yeah. the merrier. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But um, I'm, I'm lucky. Right. Because um, I kind of uh, host paranormal events at a local haunted place. Uh, a big three-story on old odd fellows lodge right so um so i have a a steady flow of new paranormal investigators that come through on a very regular basis so uh so i you know even all through covid i got to be around people and and uh still keep my you know toes in those waters so cool but that more and more they're more pagan oriented so it's yeah i want to talk maybe a little bit more about that how about do you, do you want to tell uh people uh where they can find all your work and all of that stuff and then we'll do a little bonus segment for my patrons to show my extreme appreciation thank you for everyone who keeps me being able to do this podcast as the world opens up and uh, i'm pulled in different directions to take advantage of different opportunities that are suddenly there again and can help us some of us rebuild our lives but i do want to keep doing this and it really does mean a lot that everyone supports this and listens and all that stuff and shares it with your friends so thank you it's been great having you on bob we're going to keep going of course but let the uh let the let the plebs know where they can find you <laughs> thank you right thank you so much <laughs> Sorry, guys. Uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun yeah right so uh uh 
<clears throat> my website is occultdetective.com. Yeah, easy to find there. I'm on all social media as Occult Detective. So, you know, on Twitter, uh, you can find me there on Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, easy yeah. to find, Occult Detective. I share a lot of your pics on Instagram and uh, uh, as a result, the algorithm, I think always keeps your posts up at the top, but it's, uh, it's just, you, you keep sharing pics. I like, so I, you, you share pics. I like, so I share them. Cause I'm like, that's a cool picture. People, you know, it, it's funny. I see you more than anybody else. Really? Right? Like well, as soon as I go on Instagram, it's just, it's just you like for like just scroll after scroll of something what you're posting and then i get to other people right so i, I enjoy that so weird that's so yeah. weird. I, that must i wonder if you will get seen more by someone if you keep sharing their stuff i mean none of us really know how the the rhythm works eh? Right. But, yeah but yeah it's like it's like we're tethered right yeah. so that's yeah that's great you right so I, I i love it right so it, it it keeps me from having to go look you up and yeah, search, and search your page out. You're just right there, always for me. I think my posts might be being seen again finally on Instagram because they weren't for years and years since like 2017, 2018 when I so got really severely, uh, like you know, people made clones of my accounts and all that stuff. Similar to what Celeste Mott has to deal with nonstop. I think I have like four Celeste Mots trying to friend me right now, and they're all not her, right? Of course, and they all and somehow they've they, you know they just take i don't know why the instagram lets those accounts stay alive while it takes down real people it's it's insane. yeah I, I don't get it no it's, not, insane. Yeah. it's like they're trying to drive us in mental but um i think i like i've been shadow man for a long time as a fact like my main public instagram has over the last four years dropped from seven thousand plus things down to like four thousand so it's dropped uh, that, it shouldn't like you know i built right. it to seven thousand in a year and then it just started going down and now and now it just hit up to 5,000 again and might hit to six. But I think I got unbanned, actually. I think I might have been unshadow banned by uh, when Damien Eccles followed me after the interview on both my accounts, because all of a sudden the interaction and I'm showing up more people say. So I think that that there's someone with the blue thing following you might it might change things in the rhythm. Well, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and I, don't, I don't understand that about Eccles. I mean. I, I followed him from, you know, to, so that, that area of Arkansas is like where my family's from, right? Yeah. And actually, like, my uncle's nephew, right? So no blood relation, but he's, he's, was, in, he was uh, the stepfather of the Hobbs boy, right? So I had like a connection to that whole case, you know, and I was just, I was just so enraptured by it. And, uh, and I've, I've had an opportunity to speak with Damien a few times and, you know, he said, he's a great guy. You know, I loved your interview with, with Thank him you. as well. Oh, I was, yeah. I mean, you, yeah, you handled that perfectly. That was, I really, really got a kick out of it. And I enjoy your show, right? A lot. Thanks. I listen, I listen to it all the time. Uh, in fact, uh, just the other day I, I, I rewatched the one with Storm, right? Because, I was really taken with that interview because you were talking about a lot of the things that, you know, that I had grown up with like uh, RJ Stewart. Right. So I was like, I, I loved his books and it was like, Oh, hearing you both talk about RJ Stewart. I was like, Whoa, Whoa, wait, what? I never hear anybody talk about Stewart, you know, yeah. right. And here yeah, you guys are bringing him up and having a nice little chat about it. So, 
Well, I'm hoping to get RJ Stewart on on back with Storm and do a little a fairy folk roundtable uh, with oh. some other uh, you know experts in that field. That that's a hope. My next roundtable is a Freemason one coming up, and it's just been uh, it just takes so much work to uh, coordinate with five other people around the world all for one time. Um, right. Especially like you know. To, uh, you know, nailing uh, nailing down P.D. Newman took took a bit of effort and still not fully done, but that's my fault. I have to send more emails. It's hard when you when you get COVID and sick and all that. Blah blah blah. Anyway, thanks for I being. Love, here. I love, yeah, hmm? I love the roundtables. Right, I think those are great. I did one with uh, with Sean, with uh, Michelle Bellinger and Elfie Music. Yeah, I watched it was, that. It just well, it was so, you know, and that's just so much fun. You're getting ready. You get to bounce off of each other and. You know, the the worst part is you get to talking over each other because you get so excited, you know, right? So, it's, you know, a, a good host, right, keeps that tempered and, you know, and it's, I'm sure you've, you've, you've got that handled, right? So. No, I I mean, well, yeah, obviously I've never spoke over anyone ever. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's hard. You know, I, I, I struggle with it because I, I just, <laughs> I, 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 you know, right. It's uh my my wife said you know you wind me up and you can't shut me up so yeah but then Learning again I, you know I I I also intentionally get drunk with guests and do interviews on mushrooms and you know that that's that's part of it that's well they, yeah that's always, the best conversations come out of that right if you sometimes think of all the, also all the worst conversations <laughs> yeah the deepest most meaningful conversations I ever had was with my friends under the influence laying out under the stars, talking about everything under the sun and how, you know, it all just interconnects. And, yeah. Storm wants to, next time he says he wants to do the interview after eating a gummy. So that'll be fun. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, good luck with that, right? Yeah, so. I'm, I'm down. It's, uh, <laughs> they think we'll be okay. <laughs> um, plus you're discussing the fairies and, and the fae folk and folklore mythology. I, you know, I, I don't care what, you know, that, that that's always so much fun for me. It doesn't really matter what state of mind people are in. Just right. Just, right. Just do it. I mean, but, who knows what we'll say or what will be inspired. Um, it goes hand in hand, right? You know, the, the Bay and the fly Garrick are interwoven. So. All right, people, we're going to say farewell and uh, move. Just do a, we're going to do a little bonus things Four twenty here. Wow. Perfect timing Four twenty. Um, I have time to do a little bonus thing with you for my patrons as thank you. Um, you can go check out the Patreon. Um, the different tiers are really not about how much money I get. They're about how much merch you get. So the higher tiers actually just give more merch um, for anyone who's curious about how it works. Drop in for a month, check out the free content, leave again. That's all good. Thank you very much, everybody. And thank you, Bob, for being here. And uh, don't go anywhere, of course. We'll be right back with more. And thanks all for listening. Much love. Diving deep into the practices and reality tunnels of the esoteric and the occult, check out Praxis Behind the Obscure podcast, where I interview practicing occultists, do book reviews, and much more. Check us out on YouTube, Red Circle, and many other podcast platforms.